as I've said a couple of times and will probably keep repeating, the purpose of doing this isn't to get us so that I meet somebody from Asia and I think, oh, I know how you think. I know how to present the gospel to you so that you will, you will understand what I'm trying. Or I meet somebody from Africa, or I meet a millennial, or I meet a teenager. It's like, oh, I know how to present the gospel. The point of what I've been trying to do over these last two weeks and also into this week is for us to understand that we don't all see the world the same way. For the Christian, the foundation of our worldview needs to be that God is real. And I firmly believe that until someone recognizes that, that God is real and he's the foundation of, of everything, the foundation is not strong. In many cultures that are animistic, they'll see Jesus as just another spirit, more powerful than the others, but just as another spirit. Um, so I firmly believe that we've got to try to help people get back to that foundation issue um, of the reality um, of God. And one more thing on the issue of the Reformation that I discovered after being overseas a lot, every, every culture, every nationality, we're what's called ethnocentric. A friend of mine did the first translation for the Inuit, the Eskimos, and he said their belief is that there are the Inuit and they are God's people and then there's everybody else. And it's very natural that you'll find this wherever you go in the world. That um, in Mongolia today, they're still celebrating the greatest um, kingdom that uh, the world has ever known, and that's Genghis Khan. Um, and so that's also a part of where it comes in. But the issue with the Reformation, not only did the Russians, Russian people had not heard anything about it because they didn't experience it, what I found in many seminaries, although it is changing, is when that church history professor teaches, it's predominantly the history of what? The Western church. So they don't get very much into Orthodox and how Orthodox spread East. They don't get very much into other areas because the perception is those are offshoots of the real history of the church. So we have pastors going out that have had very little um, experience studying about how the church grew in other parts of the world. They didn't all grow the same way it, it did in the Western church. This slide I wanted to keep up because of the bottom one, the importance of food, hospitality in a shared meal. Jerry was sharing about how his friend had his daughter come and live with him. That's very natural and normal from someone who's that kind of culture because they would have done the exact same thing for Jerry. And so the assumption is that Jerry would do that for their daughter. If you go overseas, eat what's put in front of you. Don't say I'm a vegan. Don't say I have to eat gluten-free or I can't have carbs. Don't do that. And I also suggest when you eat, sample a little of everything that's on the table. Because the hospitality, and I, and I really learned this going to Russia when they celebrate their birthday, they put out on the table, I think, every dish that they know how to make. And I've been taught you're supposed to be a member of the Clean Plate Club. So I, when I put on my plate, I ate, and as a good American, I was done. 
my hostess understood that to mean I needed more food. Yes. <laughs> and as she put, say, oh, Janice, you need, and then they're, of course, they're putting more food on your plate. I had to learn that you sample a little of everything, and then you eat and chat, but you eat very slowly. It's perfectly okay not to eat everything on your plate, but it's not okay for the hostess to not refill your plate. And if you have somebody you can ask, sometimes you have to ask, how many courses are there going to be? Mm -hmm. We will typically have maybe some hors d'oeuvres, and then you'll have the meal, and then you'll have dessert. One time with my Russian sister, we went to her sister's home. It was the first time I'd eaten with them, so that was really special for them. So we had this first course of really good salad, not just veggies, but um, tuna and other kinds of salads that I could have made an entire meal. So being very polite, I, I ate stuff. Plates go away, they wash them, plates come back. And the dishes on the table go, and now there is a chicken, and mashed potatoes, and some vegetables. And it's like, okay. So then I politely, and I serve myself, and I eat again, and I'm thinking, okay, the next course is gonna be dessert. No, 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 the next course was stuffed peppers. <laughs> So if you have somebody you're going with to somebody's home, just kind of ask questions about what to expect. And unless you really want to stuff yourself, eat slowly, and don't feel bad about leaving food on your plate, because otherwise it will be replenished. Uh, because they'll assume, it, they'll also, they also used to say to me, after the meal, you with dessert, you have tea. I typically don't like to have tea in the evening because there is enough caffeine in it that will keep me awake. Every time we went to someone else's home or other people came to my sister's home, why isn't Janice drinking tea? Same reason at the beginning. Why isn't Janice drinking vodka? <laughs> why doesn't Janice, why does Janice just sip her wine when she does a toast? And I've explained to my sister, I like the taste of wine. I don't want to just swallow it whole. But the question is always why when you're doing something out of the ordinary. Sometimes I was full and I really didn't want dessert. And I was close enough with the people that I could do that. But the question was always why. Why isn't Janice having any pie? Why isn't Janice having any cake? Because I was doing something that was out of the ordinary. And they, because they don't ask you what you'd like to have with your dessert. They just put it out. Mm -hmm. Just like I said before, they don't ask you what you'd like to have for breakfast or what you'd like to have for lunch or what you'd like to have for dinner. You're going to have what the hostess or the people you're staying, you're going to have what they put out on the table. And you need to, to be polite and smile and say thank you <clears throat> because to not do that doesn't look good. Yes? And the other problem is... In some cases, they're putting a whole week's worth of their income into making that meal for you. Absolutely. And I was at one Russian family's home, and she had, of all people, her ex-husband unexpectedly showed up and to spend some time with their son. She didn't eat because, as the hostess, 
you make sure everybody else has enough food, and if that means you go without, then you go without. Because you, you are treating and you're being hospitable to the people who've come into your home. So very important if you're overseas. In a shame-based culture, what is wrong attaches to the essence of who I am rather than being an act apart from me like in a guilt culture. I think I said before, we, we very easily say, well, let's separate the sin from the sinner because we see sin as an action where a law has been broken. But sin, the idea of also with the missing of the mark, um, when you say to someone in a shame-based culture about separating the sin from the sinner, they don't understand that. Um, I'm divorced. It's part of what makes me who I am, good or bad. Can't separate it from me. You can't pull it out of my essence. It's, it's part of who I am. And so for um, shame-based group-oriented cultures, Sin is seen as being a bad person, and it's a part of the essence of who you are. Um, we can see it in the shame issues with our teenagers, um, with the increasing rates of suicide, because of the shame that young people are experiencing when others bully them, when they make fun of them, when they take pictures of them at bad times and then post it up on the internet, and they feel that their life is so over that their only solution is to take their own life. Honor can include respect, face, reputation, <coughs> title, car, clothes, salary. We have to admit that um, if my son, if I had one, got accepted at Harvard, I'd probably be telling everybody. If he got accepted at San Diego State, that's still a good school, but there's a level of pride that we feel when our child or relative or ourselves gets accepted at what are considered you know, five-star universities. That comes with issues of honor and shame. It isn't about how good the school is, the school has a very high reputation, and we kind of like having our child connected with that. And we like telling people, because they worked real hard to be accepted at that institution. Other words for shame can be inadequate, scorn, insult, reproach, disgrace, publicly humi humi humiliated, ignorant, to be uneducated is very shameful in many countries around the world. Um, and the shame and honor words, I think I've told you this before, they, they appear twice as often as guilt and innocence. Um, the Old Testament word we translate sin includes an understanding of dishonor. But I found the Chinese, it's one of the papers I want to work on someday, in the Thai translation, the Chinese translation, the Japanese um, translation, the word they chose in the target culture relates to the idea of break, only breaking a law, like breaking one of Buddha's laws. It doesn't include in the range of meaning 
the dishonor, the missing the mark. And the, the paper I want to work on someday is how the theology of a translator determines the theology in the target culture. So if the one who's translating believes is, if they're very Western, very guilt-oriented, then the word that they need to choose in the target culture is that of breaking a law. But again, within the range of meanings that's from the Hebrew and the Greek, it misses the, the idea of shame and dishonor and not being what your group expects of you. And a guilt-based person, the orange circle in the left is kind of our image, and we see a little bit of red that, you know, I have some sin here, I have some sin there, but basically I'm a, I'm a good person. In a shame-based person, notice how big the red dot is, because that's how they perceive themselves if they're not receiving honor within the group. And they'll do whatever they can to have a facade of goodness, a facade of being educated, a facade of um, having a good income. If you're looking at trying to start a business in a place mon like Mongolia, don't ever ask an existing business person how they're doing, because they're gonna tell you they're doing great. And they'll say, see this new car I have? I got this new car because of the business. But then what they don't tell you is they got the new car because their third cousin twice removed loaned them the money to be able to bar, um, buy that car because it's all about image. Uh, when I was first going to Mongolia, there were many Mongolian men. They wanted to be businessmen because to them, a businessman was a guy who goes into work in a shirt and tie, he sits at a desk, and he answers phone, and he makes money. That's the definition of a, it's a very reputable, it's an honorable profession to be able to say, well, I'm a businessman. The fact that you're not making any money is immaterial. But you can call yourself a business person. So you have a lot of brothers in Mongolia who are trying to borrow money from sisters, other brothers, parents, any other relatives, so that they can start a business because their idea of business is they see you know, five other people who are selling what I'll call snacks and juices and things. And one of them has told him, you know, I got a car because of my business. So he says, okay, I'm gonna borrow the money, I'm gonna go buy the products, and within three months, I'm gonna have enough money that I can buy a car as well. Their understanding of profit is I have money in the drawer. So if I buy products to sell and I sell some of them and I have cash in the drawer, that means I'm making money. And my wife and my children, we want to go out someplace special for dinner. Well, I've got money. We're going to go do that. What happens at the end of the month? They don't have the money to buy the products to replace the ones that they just sold. Or they don't have the money to pay their rent. And so and some guys do this, and it's, it's more men that tend to do it than women, because it's an area where men are more seeking honor than, than women are. And they repeat it and do it again. And after even the second or third time they've done it, if they can find somebody who will give them the money, 
because again, the family member wants to be well thought of, so how can I turn him down? You know, he's my brother. He needs money to start a business. They don't think about the fact that if there are three storers that are servicing a particular area, that if you start a fourth shop that's selling the exact same products, the demand is not going to increase so that you're making the same money they are, the customers are gonna spread out more. So everybody makes, but they don't, they don't think in those terms. And I've had college graduates in budgeting classes that cannot figure out why they don't have any money at the end of the month and they're having to borrow to finish the month and then pay it back when they get paid. They don't, it doesn't occur to them that the first week when they got paid and they went out to eat four nights that week. It doesn't occur to them that maybe next month Maybe I shouldn't go out to eat four nights, maybe one, and then we'll see how we do the rest. Of it. That just doesn't dawn on them, which sounds crazy to us, but it's because of the kind of um, capitalistic, budgetary, the ideas of the way we have been raised. And most people in the West, if you ask, well, what is profit? Well, it's the difference between what goes out and what comes, what comes in. But in many other countries, that's not, that's not the same. So if some guy doesn't have a job, he's the one on the right, so how do I fix it? I borrow money and I start a business. And then that facade is out there that I'm really a good person because I have a respectable occupation. Uh, and the honor and respect and esteem are given to me by my group. If I'm part of a gang, I get my honor and respect because my gang is the strongest one in the neighborhood. By myself, I'm nothing. But if I'm a part of that gang, whatever it is, then people are gonna respect me because they respect that particular group. And in this culture more than any others, um, not that we also don't want others to think highly of us, but in a group-oriented culture, shame-based culture, the, the, that desire is even stronger, that others will think highly of me. Uh, missing the mark, it includes not doing what is expected in an honor culture. So we, we talked about a little bit at the beginning, she was um, telling me that, that in Ukraine, people will also say yes when they really aren't gonna show up. But what's expected is, I should tell you yes, I'll come and help you. But then I don't show up. Um, people who wanna borrow money, they know when you're gonna get paid. And they come to you as you've gotten paid, and I'm sitting there and I've got $200 in my pocket. And they say, Janice, you know, my, I'm, I'm really short right now. Um, can I borrow $50? I've got 200. Of course I can give you 50. I don't think about the fact that some of that money has to go for my home rent. It has to buy groceries for my family. It has to pay my utility bill, my cell phone bill. What matters is right then, I have the opportunity to look really good. And so I give you the $200. And when, it was, when they were connected with the Soviet Union, it actually worked very well for them because everybody had a job. Even if they were drunk, they had a job. So if I borrowed money from somebody, there wasn't a problem of my paying it back the following month 
because I was going to get paid by my job. Well, once the Soviet Union fell apart and Mongolians moved more towards a capitalistic culture, then you got a job if you did the work. And it didn't mean that everybody was going to be fully employed if they weren't going to make that effort. But they still used the same word, Janice, can I borrow 50 bucks? And I'm looking at them, my logic says, uh, excuse me, you just told me you don't have a job. You have no income. That's what, this is what a Westerner would do. How do you plan on paying me back? Because we think in those terms. But for the person who wants the honor, they don't think about the fact that this person they're loaning it to. So when I did my budgeting classes for the Christian community there, I said, number one, which is a really big deal, husbands, go talk to your wives. You need to work out kind of a budget of how much money do you need to feed your family. <clears throat> and I had one Christian guy who, he had somebody who wanted to borrow something from him, and he said, um, I said, let me, I, I need to go talk to my wife. And the guy was just flabbergasted. Because Mongolian men do not do that. You do not ask your wife. It's, the Mongolian man wants to do it, the Mongolian man um, just goes and does it. But if you've got somebody who has a need, for example, they need medicine for their child. Or maybe they need food for their family. I said, if you have the money, and give it to them. Just give it to them. Don't loan it to them. Because loaning it creates an obligation, especially when there's little chance the person's going to be able to pay you back. Just give it to them. Make it a blessing, a gift from the Lord that you're giving to them. The relationship stays intact, and then they're not walking around being afraid to be around you because they can't ever pay you back. So relationships in Mongolia end very easily because the person doesn't pay the money back. As I said, like I said, it's more common um, in a group-oriented culture, but it's present in every culture. Um, the person needs to do what the group expects. Um, I think in our political realm today, there is this same idea that you need to act, you need to say, whatever your group is, whatever you're identifying with, that you need to kind of stay on the right track with your group or you're gonna have people in your group angry with you because you're disagreeing with what their perspective is. And they're gonna think less of you. They may unfriend you, they may stop talking to you, and you may lose a friendship um, over it. So we're very conscious about what our group, how our group perceives us. So if you're like me, I stay out of the discussion. <laughs> then I don't have to wanna worry, about, unless, I, unless there's somebody I can discuss it with who doesn't care what I think wants to listen to what I think, but isn't going to judge me based on what my particular, and, and the friendship isn't going to end because we disagree. So the idea of honor shame isn't just for Asia, it isn't just for South America, it isn't just um, for Africa, it isn't just Old Testament and New Testament, it pops up in every single culture. And the point of what I'm trying to talk about in these uh, Sunday mornings is that the gospel is more than you are forgiven. For the person in a shame-based culture, when you say to them, you are a sinner in need of salvation and you need forgiveness and Jesus Christ is offering it, I have just intensified 
what they feel and how bad they feel about themselves. I haven't resolved anything for them. But for a shame-based culture, and it's throughout the Bible, we have been raised from shame to honor. Adam and Eve disrespected the Lord. We are a part of that family. We are in a position of dishonor. But in Christ, we have been raised to a position of honor above anything the world has ever known. That may not get the attention at first press. I guarantee you in a shame culture, it gets their attention. That they are in an honorable position because Jesus Christ has placed them there. And that's, that's also a part of, of the gospel besides you are forgiven. So the idea isn't that if I'm dealing with Mongolians that I only talk about um, uh, you've been raised to honor. I will talk about the same next area we're going to go into is you don't have to be fair to the spirit world anywhere anymore. And as they grow in their understanding of their relationship with the Lord, yes, you are also a sinner in need of salvation. That stain that is on you, and God has wiped away that stain, you, you have been forgiven. So it isn't that in other cultures that we only tell them part of the gospel, which is actually what we do most of the time in the West. We only talk about you are forgiven. We only talk about you're a sinner in need of salvation. But there are people that feeling guilty about something, they're feeling shame. But it isn't something that they've done, it's the position that they're in. Or may, maybe they're an abuse victim. Uh, maybe it's a woman who's been raped. Maybe it's someone who experienced child abuse. I don't need to tell them you're a sinner in need of salvation. I can tell them, you have been raised to honor. I don't care what the world thinks about you. I don't care how they view you. The Lord Jesus Christ has raised you to a place of honor and has cleansed you. Um, cleansing is something that resonates with a lot of the Muslim world. And it's why the Kazakhs are making um, progress in the western part of Mongolia, because they're coming in and they're sacrificing animals and they're talking about cleansing. And that resonates with the Mongolians who are there because cleansing and being raised to honor is what they need and want. Um, as I said, group-oriented culture, um, the greatest fear is exclusion. Think about 1 Corinthians 5 when, they, they, when, when Paul says, throw him out of the congregation. We look at that and say, big deal. <laughs> I'm going to leave First Press and I'm going to join First Methodist. So what difference does it make if the group I'm a part of throws me out? But in a group-oriented culture, when you get excluded from the group that you're a part of, again, think about a gang member. When you're excluded from that, that's a really big deal. Um, by doing what is unexpected in a group culture, there is a very high risk of being marginalized. Um, behavior is either acceptable or unacceptable in the eyes of my group. This is what was happening, especially to the Gentiles in the first century. What were the Gentiles supposed to be doing? You acknowledge that there's a multitude of gods and spirits, and the Jews had one, and there's just a whole multitude of gods and spirits. But when the Gentiles started saying to their neighbors, you know, those idols, they're just pieces of wood. They're just rock and metal. What really matters is the one creator God. 
you're doing something that put them at high risk of saying, I don't want to hear that anymore. You know, you, you're not supposed to talk about those kinds of things because we know that that's not true. And so you either change your tune or we need to exclude you and push you outside of our group. Um, the self-respect is maintained not by choosing what is good rather than what is evil, but by choosing what is expected of me. That's a very different way for, than our way of thinking. We're always thinking about the action. So I choose good or I choose bad. But for many in a shame-based or a group-oriented culture, it's more, I need to do what's expected of me. Because if I don't do what's expected of me, then I could easily be marginalized. And <clears throat> our goal in sharing the gospel isn't to get people to stop thinking the way they think. Our goal is to bring the gospel to them where they are. And one of the things I hope I can get into a, a little bit next week, but it may have to be for another series, is the idea of story. We are used to, if I want to share the gospel, I have a whole bunch of statements I'm going to give you. Sinner in need of salvation. Jesus died for you. God loves you. We have a whole bunch of theological statements because we believe that people just need the correct knowledge. Um, but I believe that part of the reason God made the Bible 75% story is he wants us sharing it in stories. One of the things I love about, about Jerry's and our services and what Jerry does, when I tell a story like the ones that, that Jerry tells every week, then the culture, whatever it is, they hear that story and there are different parts of it that mean more to them than others. It's not about giving you a theological statement because our theology comes from the stories. We know God is love not because the Bible says he is love. We know God is love because of the stories in the Bible that demonstrate it and that show it. Um, Jesus dying for us, it comes out of story. We know what happened. We know what the history is. We know what God did in the Old Testament. We know about his, his grace and mercy. And people who say that the Old Testament um, is primarily, you know, the God of war and judgmental are missing the God of grace that's in the Old Testament. And that grace and his love comes through in the stories. So by telling the, the stories, you let God work on those people. You let them hear the stories about who God is, who Jesus is, and what was accomplished, and they can grow in their understanding. For me, it's far better than trying to argue somebody um, into the kingdom. It's just presenting the stories of what happened, and in those stories, we learn our theology. And one of the things that, if I don't get into it next week, it'll be that at some other Academy of Faith class, is when you share stories, you ask people, who are the characters? What's the interaction? Is there anybody in the story you identify with? Where is God in this story? And you let people think about that interaction. God kept those stories for a reason. One of my favorite ones is the story of Naaman. Um, where the most important characters in the story aren't Elisha and Naaman, 
they are um, uh, Naaman's wife's servant, who was an Israelite, and we don't have her name. And the servants of Naaman, both groups are unnamed, they're both pivotal in the story. And you get people thinking about the interaction in there and how does God come into the story of Esther, the book of Esther, where God's name isn't used, but you, we know God is active in it. You, you tell the stories. The other thing that's very helpful with storytelling, most of us in this room are in the category of what I'll call literate learners. That doesn't mean that people who are primarily oral learners can't read. But if you look at some of the statistics, the very low percentage of high school graduates and especially college graduates who never again read a book. <laughs> Literate learners get their knowledge from reading. Primary oral learners get their knowledge, radio, internet, story, proverbs, interaction with others. Mongolians are primary oral learners. They're very literate, they can read. And one of the things that's interesting in our educational system, especially in seminary, because the seminary professor who did a paper on it, is probably 90% of the faculty at any seminary are what? They're literate learners. They want to read books. They want to read books, they want to write them, they want to read journal articles, they want to write them. It's all about the written word. Guess what the percentage is of new students? They're primary oral learners. So we have a, a crash here where the people who are sitting in front of us are primary oral learners. And so what assignments do we give them? We say, go read a book because that's the terms of most of the professors. That's how we, we tend to think. Millennials are primary oral learners. So if we're trying to share the gospel and do things by saying, well, we need a translation of the Bible, and we need to have tracts that we're gonna hand out and give to people so that they can read about this, we're missing how people gather their knowledge and how they grow in that. Very important factor in, you know, depending on where we're trying to um, share the gospel uh, with other people. There's a good friend of mine um, who's an adjunct faculty at the school and she's been doing, she did the translation for, um, I can't think of the group. Who was the group when we were fighting Iraq? The Kurds, the primary translation with them, but her, her whole focus is storytelling because you've got people who are primary oral learners, maybe, maybe they can read, maybe they can't, and she's teaching them how to, to share the stories of the Bible with others and then have discussions about those stories. I think I went down a rabbit trail. Um, in the Old Testament, those had physical problems, were considered unclean and sinners. When Jesus refers to the sinners and the tax collectors, the sinners aren't people, and we say, oh, they are sinners, they all broke God's law. No. The woman who had the issue of blood was in that category. The person who's unclean is in that category. They haven't done anything wrong, but their condition is such that they, they cannot come in and take part in the temple worship, and so they are considered outsiders. Tax collectors were considered outsiders. 
Uh, the guilt, guilt culture person doesn't see uncleanness as sin because the person didn't do anything wrong. That's just how we've been trained to think. You're a sinner, and we'll say, you know, I'm doing fairly well, but I still do some things wrong. I mean, we hear that over and over and over again because we think of sin primarily as what I have done. Um, doing this research really helped me a lot with my mom. She lived to be 102. I don't think she ever did anything wrong in her entire life. <laughs> but being able to talk to her and say, you have the stain of uncleanness and you lost your honor, we lost our honor in the Garden of Eden. I can say it about a one-year-old baby that, that that child is a sinner because they have the stain of being of the family of Adam. For me, that makes a lot more sense um, than to always focus it on the person has done something wrong. And I'm not saying that they're, we've all, and I, I'm sure my mom did something wrong somewhere in her life. It's just I never, I never experienced seeing it. Um, and like I said, in a shame-based culture, if I say you're a sinner in need of salvation, but I'm going to forgive you, I have just increased your badness. So they don't even like to use the term to say to someone who's maybe offended you, to say, I forgive you. The way they do forgiveness is, I just start talking to you. And sometimes that means there are underlying issues that never got resolved, but they, they're very reluctant to say, I forgive you, because of what the implications are for many of them. Um, in the Arab world or Middle East, and this is very much Mongolian's uh, worldview, shame is hidden or it's revenge. It's something is done outward um, in order to restore the honor. In Japan, shame is often hidden. It's turned inward to resolve and cleanse the shame, I have to take my own life. The shame on Japan for having lost the war. So many <clears throat> of their warriors took their own lives because to deal with the shame and to have my family name have honor with it, I need to take my own life and remove myself. Um, Jesus' claims threatened the honor and power of the establishment. And that's they had to do away with him. <clears throat> there are some global types of honor and shame. We have honor and shame in the West. They have it Latin America and Africa, Islamic world. Shame-based cultures are not all the same. And they aren't shame-based to the same percentage. It's just that happens to be one of their two that, that are emphasized more. In Mongolia and places in Africa, guilt is at the bottom of the list but fear of the unseen world and lack of honor are very high on the list. <clears throat> for, for our culture, I'd say guilt is up there, second comes shame, and then fear of the unseen world is kind of down towards the bottom of the list. And the beauty of what God has in the scriptures is the gospel isn't just one. It doesn't just, it doesn't just affect just one group of people or one culture. Um, the fact that we have different cultures and we think differently isn't a big surprise to God. He's not sitting there saying, oh my goodness, Jesus, I had no idea. I thought they were all going to think the same the whole time. He, from the very beginning, there has been differences. And the gospel responds to those differences. 
Now, in a fear-based culture, the opposite is power. It predominates in the non-Western world. <clears throat> it's a fear of the unseen world, which is everywhere around us. I think I've shared with you in Mongolia, which is of their two top ones, fear of the unseen world, is probably higher even than shame. They are worried about what will happen to their children. We think of what will the choices our children make. But in a fear-based predominant area, they're worried about what the unseen world is going to do to them. So you always want to be trying to placate that unseen world to manipulate them and get them to do good things for you. And this fear is countered by power, uh, which takes back control of our fate back from the unseen world. When Mongolians go to the Lama, they ask, what do I need to do to, to deal with the bad things that are happening? And then the Lama tells them to do umptium. When there's a, um, a, a burial, when somebody's going to the cemetery, you, you take one pathway to the cemetery and you take a different one home because you don't want the spirits. It's going to confuse the spirits. Um, mothers will put little ribbons on their sons and make, they'll dress them in little girls' clothes because they don't want the spirit world to pay attention to their son. And it's like, I think the spirit world can figure this one out. And you don't, at least when I was first going there, you don't walk up to a mother who's with her baby and say, oh, what a precious, beautiful little child you have. Because by saying that, I have just drawn attention to you and your child. And the last thing they want is the spirit world paying attention to them. So I have a friend there, her name is Nirgui, which means is not. Um, they don't have names very often that will say good things. It, it's names that, says, that say, don't pay attention to me. Spirit world, don't take any notice of me um, because I know that if I upset you and you're very jealous and everything else, then bad things are going to happen to my child. So we, we stay away from that. The unseen world controls and causes everything that happens. An interesting read one time is read Revelation from the perspective, and uh, Eugene Peterson gets into this. What happens in heaven happens on earth. It isn't that what happens on earth, God responds. God takes the initiative. So that fluctuation back and forth, and this is, we know this from the, from the, um, the story of Job. Where does the initiative for the action start? It starts in the unseen world. So for people who think this way, it's not totally off base. It's just that they're giving more power to, to demons and that which is evil as opposed to giving the power to God. You think about India that has a million gods for every day of the year. Mm -hmm. It's insane. And they're constantly in fear, and they have to placate as many as they know of. Yep. And you go to the, in Mongolia, you go to the Lama to deal with that. If you want to curse somebody for whatever reason, you go to the shaman. You don't go to the Lama, Lama to curse somebody. You go to the Lama to help you um, have good things happen to you and have blessings. And you can understand, think about it, Christianity comes in. 
they don't get to the foundation of God, the reality of God. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is very often in the Mongolian church perceived as just another spirit. He's stronger than the other ones, but he's just another spirit. So if he's another spirit, then I'm supposed to treat him the same way I did the other ones, a little bit more deference because he's stronger, but there's the same expectation. So if I go to a Mongolian that I want to share the gospel with and I say, if you will just believe in Jesus Christ, your life will be better. They have just heard me say, my son will get a job. My husband will stop drinking. My daughter will have a baby. Because that's their definition of my life is going to be better. So sometimes the things we say that we understand, of course your life is going to be better if you believe in Jesus Christ. But I don't mean by that that you're going to have a lot of money and you're going to be healthy and you're not going to have any problems. Many in the who are, have a fear of the unseen world, that's what they're hearing us say. And again, that's why I go back to go to the stories of the Bible. Rather than making statements, go to the stories that are in the Bible. It's not about the choices I make, but what the unseen world will do. Um, when bad things happen, who did what to offend which spirit? In the story in John 9, 1 and 2, the disciples say, who sinned that caused this man to be born blind? That's because their thinking was bad things happen as the result of the activity of the unseen world, and they punish behavior that they don't like either that person or a descendant or a family member, but you try to find out who caused the problem. And these were Jesus' disciples. So this thinking of the fear of the unseen world was very present um, in the first century. And Paul Hebert called it the excluded middle because we only think in terms of the seen and the unseen. We don't think of the interaction. Um, fulfilling the expected social roles. Um, you do not confront friends because it might break relationships. If I see my friend and they're doing something that I know is wrong, I don't confront them as a Mongolian because if I confront them, it might break my relationship with them. If I break a relationship, then I've broken the tranquility and bad things could happen to me as a result of that. So instead, I say nothing. So when I was first going there, some good friends of mine, they had a friend that they would, he and his wife, they didn't invite him over for dinner. He was rampantly unfaithful, um, a drinker. And I asked her, I said, why, you know, why are you doing that? Is this who you want to be around your son? If you want to interact with this person, that's fine, but you're inviting him into your home. You're bringing him around your child. You're holding him up as one of your friends when you know full well that the life, and he was a member of the church, that the life he's leading is inconsistent with what he's professing. But they don't want to confront because confront, again, breaks relationship, breaking relationships, upset the spirit world. Upsetting the spirit world means bad things are going to happen to me. So I say nothing. Tsagansaf, um, uh, the, the new year in Mongolia, one of the things that families do is they get together. And everybody says, oh, I'm sorry for anything I've done to harm you and all the rest of that stuff. And I had a Mongolian woman tell me, 
don't think for a moment they believe it. They say that because they know that's what they're supposed to say, but they don't resolve the underlying issue. They just kind of act as though it never happened, but they hold on to the anger. And I've seen it many years ago, I've even seen it had uh, missionaries tell me um, with pastors that who haven't forgotten an insult, who haven't forgotten some sign of disrespect, and these are pastors, and they smile and everything's fine, but the lack of true forgiveness is still there, and it's still there inside of them. And if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, as, and we all know this happens sometimes to us and to others, they explode because it's just never been dealt with and never talked about. Because you're not supposed to do that because that breaks relationships. Arisa. Um, and so the breaking of the relationships or disregarding uh, custom is to sin because it, affect, uh, it affects the unseen world. Um, bad fortune like untimely births or deaths, natural disasters, Somebody did something somewhere wrong um, to have that happen. And the unseen may have two levels, spirits and ancestors, and the higher level of God, heaven and hell. This is where it comes in with just being a learner, where you just have to listen to what people have to say. And not with the idea of, oh, I now know what you believe. I, know, I now know how you think. It's a matter of, I'm trying to learn about you and pray about it but don't walk in when we're trying to disciple or share our faith, say, I have this wonderful treasure box here, and I'm gonna walk up to you, and I'm going to dump it in your lap, because I am to be sharing the gospel with you. Jesus was all about relationships. He was all, all about talking to people and interacting with them. Uh, they said that offending the spirits brings bad luck, which puts you in a position of shame, making you a bad person. So it's tied together. If we are interacting with somebody, especially if it's overseas, and we ask them to stop doing certain cultural requirements, um, if bad luck occurs, the one person's decision will be seen as causing suffering for the community. And we can't go in there and say, oh, but the one who's in you is stronger than the one who's in the world. We just need to pray for people. And we need to let the Lord work on them because they are far more aware of the consequence of their decision than we are. I mean, we're so independent, we say, well, so your family rejects you. You know, go live on your own. Because that seems very natural and normal to us. But in a group-oriented culture, that's not natural and normal, and it's an enormous sacrifice that we're asking them to make. And it doesn't make the Holy Spirit can't ask them to make that sacrifice, but we just need to be careful and to take into account how we're presenting things, understanding what that person's going to have to go through when they make that decision. Because we get to get on a plane and fly back home. They have to stay living wherever it is they are. Abusing or mistreating the less privileged is tolerated because their situation is considered their own fault. Society takes no responsibility for the poor. This is in very large parts of the world. There isn't a safety net. I think I've shared with you when I'm counseling a woman who's being abused by her husband and maybe even her children abused, I can't tell her to just move out. She has no place to go. And if she's 
at home taking care of the kids and her husband's bringing any amount of money into the home, who's going to feed her? There aren't uh, safety places for them to go. They do have a small amount of like retirement money that they have been putting uh, money into an account. And there's something about that whoever your last employer was, they kind of have to pay the bulk of what it is. So people tend to not want to hire somebody in their 50s or early 60s because then they're going to be on the hook out of their funds for paying the retirement for that particular. But the money they pay out in retirement, if you think Social Security doesn't pay you very much, we live like kings and queens on Social Security compared to what other countries pay as far as some kind of a pension for those who have worked. And the spirit world approves of status and wealth. Don't talk about how that person is a sinner. He's rich, he drives a car. Um, when you're trying to share the gospel in a culture that thinks this way, the hardest people to reach are those who are wealthy, those who have money, those who have privilege, those who have status, because why should they change anything? Because maybe if I change what I'm believing, maybe I'm going to lose all this good luck, so why should I change? When the gospel first came to Mongolia and the churches were there, it was teenagers and women and the poor were the first ones who were coming. Because they didn't, they weren't crazy about their lives the way they were, but they were willing to listen to something different. It wasn't until um, uh, it, it being a pastor became an honored position in the Christian community that you had some who were interested in doing it. But I had a, a Mongolian friend tell me that there are many unbelievers in Mongolia who think Christians are just lazy. Because what do they see? Mm -hmm. They see the pastor. He just walks around. Maybe he has a car. They don't see him doing a job. They, we say, well, he's doing a lot. He's doing spiritual counseling. He's preparing for his message a lot. But what the, what the non-believer sees is you're not working. You're not going into your job like I am. So there are many in the unbelieving world in Mongolia who don't have a very high opinion of pastors. The Christian community does but the unbeliever doesn't because they don't see them as, as working. Since the first centuries, the theologians have declared that each of these three has been seen as the priority. I learned in my research that there are scholars if I don't say that the priority of the gospel is that you are forgiven I'm a heretic. And I've seen enough different views on scholars to realize I don't think any of us have a corner on it. Mm. Um, the victory over the spirits was actually the very first gospel. If you'd been in the first century trying to tell people you're forgiven, they would have paid no attention to you whatsoever. Their biggest issue was the spirit world, and Jesus had just had victory over that spirit world. Um, acknowledging that honor was taken from God and with the Reformation penalty paid for our guilt. That was a time where honor, shame issues were more prevalent. It wasn't until um, the time of the, uh, the Refor Reformation that guilt that had to be dealt with became the priority. So if over the history of the Western Church, 
we've hit each of the three of these emphases. It's easy to understand that other parts of the world also have the different emphases. And it isn't that you gradually, you start with victory over the spirit rules, and then you get into the honor issue, and then when you really understand the gospel, then it's that you are forgiven. For us, we start with you are forgiven, and as we grow, we start to understand we're in a place of honor, and as we grow, we start to understand about the, um, the victory over the spirit world. All of those aspects of the gospel are important for all of us. It's just some of them are gonna resonate better with, with others than maybe the one that would resonate first with me. Um, and again, from all of these factors, we should see that we need to go in as learners. And I'm going to end here. Um, what I would hope to get into next week, I, I don't know how many slides I have left, but I really want to get into the issue of the storytelling. Because for me, that's the best way to be sharing the gospel. And what I told people at the beginning, Jerry, that I know about your, your services, is the story that's there. God works on people and they get out of it what the Holy Spirit wants them to see and get out of it by telling the story and how the characters interact. How does God interact in that story? How does God show who he is in that story? And then regardless of the culture, regardless of the worldview, the Holy Spirit speaks to people through the stories. Which, like I said, there's a reason God made 75% of the Bible story. Um, if that's what he thought was the priority way of um, conveying to others who he is and his character, then maybe I should pay attention to that and maybe kind of follow along with him. So, are there any other? Yes? Um, I, can you just briefly explain acknowledging that honor was taken from God and what the reparation penalty paid? Okay, the acknowledging that honor was taken from God is the honor-shame issue. So they saw the issue that we were in a position of shame, we've been raised to honor. And then with the Reformation, that the penalty was paid for, so that was the third. Well, what does the Reformation mean? The Reformation, that time in history, which Rick is gonna be talking about. Oh, oh. When Luther and all of them came forward and said, I am just buried in my guilt. How do I deal with this enormous guilt that I'm carrying around? Um, Earlier than that, in the Middle Ages, before that, people weren't thinking about their guilt. And when Jesus first um, gave his life, their priority wasn't, I'm walking around with all this guilt, what do I do with all this guilt? It's just that it has changed. As the culture changed, the emphasis on the gospel has come more to the surface. And as we reflect on it more in the scriptures, then more and more of that comes up for all of us. Does that kind of relate to when they were buying condolences from the Catholic Church for their sins or something? Indulgence. Indulgence. Yeah. Indulgence. 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 That's what led to the Reformation, yes, Rick? Uh, that's part of it, the end there. And yeah, there's a, a selling, a buying and selling. Uh, I would, on your scale there, I would put that not as honor and shame, but like a guilt and. You can buy your way. You can, buy, you can pay to get your guilt. <laughs> yeah, so you I'm pay, not sure you that's pay to have the I'm penalty. Sure that would be honor shame, but the. Uh, 
yeah, pay for that forgiveness. Um, but there was the honor of the feudal lords, and there right. were different well, yeah, classes. The, the whole so, feudal system was built on honor. And it, yeah. it isn't like it changed in a year or changed in a, a decade. It was just became very fluid. And my point in bringing that out is that even in the history of the Western Church, we have had different emphases over time. So we shouldn't be surprised if we see different emphases in other cultures in the world. And it isn't that they're gonna to progress to where we are. <clears throat> it's just that their starting point is a different starting point. But they need to hear the whole gospel, but maybe not all on day one. Okay, anything else? Anyone? Uh, back to the paying money to get uh, right with the Lord. How about in my in my lifetime, I remember people would have to give money to the Roman Catholic Church to get their families out of purgatory. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an old person, but I, that's, it's still going on. Yeah, the, the church has their rules yeah, to um, yeah. help themselves and to supposedly help us. Religiosity. Yeah, religiosity. It's like superstition. There's, I was raised with that purgatory. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it still going on? I probably. Jerry is shaking his head, saying no. No. Uh, you know, it was, it was never officially Catholic teaching, so let's not bear false witness against the neighbor. But it was practiced. <laughs> Who knows all kinds of crazy things that are practiced in Protestant churches? Yeah. Who knows what people think in the future? Who knows what some pastor has said too casually, not thoughtfully, it's so and given the impression of, you know, listen to my sermon today. You work hard enough, you're going to get a reward. That's not the sermon. <laughs> but you could get that out of that if you wanted to, even for some goodwill. Yeah. So, uh, no. If people um, really think that they can pay money to get their loved ones out of purgatory, well, it's dead wrong. Send them my way. We could use the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll pray for them. <laughs> you have, you'd be lucky if you can get prayed out of there. If you did put purgatory down my throat, and I never felt forgiven. Yeah. It was. It was hopeless. Yep. But the gospel is hope. Yeah. But when it gets perverted, when it gets turned, when, when it's taken to somebody's advantage, then the message that comes out, and that's why it's important that we um, not just worship God on Sunday, be part of a small group, be reading the Bible, growing in your own understanding, be able to give answers to people, be able to share a story in the Bible um, with someone. Um, so that we can help dispel um, some of the information that's out there. Um, if anybody is interested, when I'm all done, I will make a PDF of what my slides have been. Um, I don't have it ready yet because I keep changing as I go along. Um, if you'd like to get a PDF, you're more than welcome if you just come and put your name and your email address on this list. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious Lord, we're just so thankful for who you are. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace, and all the things that we have witnessed in the history of the scriptures of how you have interacted with your creation, how you have demonstrated your grace, how you have shown your love to us. Lord, and of all things, you want to share that character with us. Lord, we're so thankful for that. I just pray for each person here that we will be filled with your spirit and that we will worship you and honor you and serve you and find ways that we can share um, your love and your character um, with those that we come in contact with. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.